This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. From Hollywood this week on literally the Walk of Fame, we're right outside the door. Literally, yep. It's you. We we crossed the stars walking into Hollywood and Vine, or as here. Tom Waits used to call it, Heart Attack and Vine. That's where we are. <laughs> this is Score the Podcast. I'm your host Kenny Holmes, back again with you heard him, Robert Kraft. Yep. And uh, today's guest. He's an Emmy-winning, Golden Globe-winning, Academy Award-winning film composer. He just needs a Tony, and he'll be the EGOT. EGOT, yep. Uh, known for, of course, uh, the 2012 film that won the Oscar, Life of Pi. He also worked on Little Miss Sunshine, Moneyball, 500 Days of Summer, The Good Dinosaur, Capote, Boondock Saints, Ice Storm. I mean, there, there's so many huge... And he's got a couple great ones coming up. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic which is titled on the basis of sex and uh that, that comes in, out in november yes starring army hammer and felicity jones um and he's worked with uh many directors including terry gillum james mangold joel schumacher and uh ang lee who he won the oscar with on, oh yeah uh, that Life guy Pi. and uh robert you have some stories uh that we're going to get into about uh, Life of Pi. Well, Michael and I worked on a number of films together, 500 Days of Summer and Little Miss Sunshine, but also we had a pretty remarkable journey together. It was a close call that Life ended up working out, a let's very to say the least. A very close call. I've heard you mention this a couple times before. I, I'm anxious to hear the rest of the story because uh, I know that it's pretty, it's pretty interesting and there's a lot of pressure involved. This is a film that went on to win an Oscar for best score along with several other things, but a lot which of anxiety the, around Which is it. almost cinematic in itself that the end oh, very, yeah. sentence is, yeah. and then it won the Academy Award. It had Award. the perfect three-part arc yeah. of, a, of a, you know, it started good, had some rocky moments, and then won the Oscar and... Perfect. It, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, also on today's show, an all-new episode of The Inside Track with Dr. Sulon Tan. And this one's titled Music and Dialogue. And it's really interesting. It talks about how the composer has to really pay attention to where dialogue is. And also something uh, really cool, which... Uh, Dr. Sulan Tan will explain a little bit, but the cocktail party effect, which you yeah. see a lot in TV and movies. There's a great example of it that you'll hear coming up, um, but it's it's the idea of directing the viewer or, or the listener, the, the audience, to something by doing something with the with the sound and when the music starts to disappear or when the sound starts to disappear you start to find one conversation taking place that can do a lot of Similar different interesting things why it's called the cocktail party effect if you're at a big party and there's a million people it's just it's noise. just noise until you focus on somebody talking and then all of a sudden you can hear them and everything else kind of drowns out and it's it's a really interesting idea and it's used a ton in tv and movies and she'll break effect. it down. Yeah, yep. really cool stuff. I'm looking forward to hearing that and learning something. We're also going to play Name That Score with Michael Dana. 
And the topic today, Matt? Academy Award, because Michael Dana has won an Academy Award for Life of Pies, we just mentioned. Yes. Um, we are going to focus on Academy Award winners for Best Original Score. Right on. Going all the way back, I think, to 1964 or something awesome. like that. Kind of a Mary Poppins year, if I'm guessing correctly. Actually, you know, that's not even the oldest one I have here. I'll have to stick around. Oh. I want to point out, too, we're going to post some pictures on our website for this episode, but the surroundings in this studio it's a it's a building that i from what michael said all of the other lofts in here are modern but he came in here with a designer and they literally turned it into this world collection of different things yeah He's, how would you describe the just, I, w- I would think this is what if you walked into a gentleman's club in a British gentleman's club in <laughs> Mumbai or in uh-huh. Nairobi, Kenya. Yeah, there's like a, in a room 1890, with a... you'd get this wood-paneled, big leather chairs, elephant tusks, and funny pith helmets, and lots of... And there's a hookah in the other room with a bunch of different instruments. And yep. Well, we are on Hollywood Boulevard, so there are a lot of hookahs down <laughs> on the street. I'm sorry. We'll put some photos on our, uh, on our website, score-movie.com slash podcast. Yep. So we're going to jump into a, a topic really quick. There's a new trailer uh, for the Halloween remake. Yeah, that's right. That movie's coming out this fall. Uh, John Carpenter, who you hear his music here, is not directing the movie, but is scoring the movie. I think that's just awesome to know that he can have those two abilities. It's very rare. People don't realize. Not. There's not that many guys. We were talking about this a little bit before we started rolling here, but the uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood did He's done a, a Million Dollar Baby and a yep. couple others. Um, I also I got a chance to work on the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, yeah. Really remarkable searchlight film. And Ben Zeitlin directed it and co-composed the score with Dan Romer. And it's one of my favorite scores. It's really interesting. So I want to ask you, Robert, the way this works, because you, you have been inside the studio system when I assume this type of thing has come up many times before. What do you look for if some director says, oh, also, I want to score my own movie? What you look for is uh, another composer very quickly. Um, (laughs) Because, first of all, directors are so cosmically distracted and overwhelmed with finishing the film that to say, oh, by the way, could could we add another uh, assignment? That's so rare. So it's It's quite an assignment, too. It's really surprising. Plus, in this era of filmmaking, the post production aspect of the film and filmmaking is the most intense i mean they're all intense you know the film has three parts the right. beginning the middle and the end i mean the filmmaking process and but post now with all the special effects so it'd be really really strange for a director to step forward not only to say he has the skills to score a film which is a lifetime of experience to be able to actually do that as we know from all the incredible talents and we're in the studio of one of the great talents here. And I can't imagine, you say, hey, Michael Dana, why don't you direct Life of Pi as well as score it? I mean, <laughs> right. It would be the same kind of flipping the script. So very, very rare. And Does it make your job easier or harder if the director is musical? And, you know, because if they're doing the picture and they feel strongly about it, they're not going to say, mm, you know, I don't really like the composer on the project because they are the composer. Right. So ha- is that a tougher conversation I think it would be harder to say, let's fire the composer 
if it is the director. <laughs> right. But um, you know, you've touched on a really interesting arena that I've had to go through many, many times, which is when directors say, you know, I'm a musician, or both say, you know, just before we start talking about music, I want you to know I played bass in my high school band. So I, you know, I really <laughs> I kinda know get what, this. I kind of get how this. Yeah, all I know how it thing. works. It's usually those guys. Forgive me. They're the worst. They are the worst <laughs> with music because they think they know something, and they don't allow the composer free. How range. do you screen a director? I was just going to say who says yeah. this. Do you like you know you were the head of Music Fox, so yep. I, I assume that. You, it's part of your job to vet that person in some way. But when they're the director, yeah. now granted, they may have to report back to the studio. That's kind of their boss in this whole thing. That's where the money's coming from usually. But what? Oh, it's I think one. A clock just went off. It must be one o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what types of thing do you look for when you're screening somebody to see? I don't know if they actually can't compose this. It's like this. any. It's like any first relationship. If you don't know the director. They have the opportunity to say the most boneheaded things in your first conversation. And if they do, first of all, when you're making a little movie at a studio, meaning you're not going with a $200 million movie where your choices of composers start to become fairly, you're not going to go for some, you know, my brother writes music. Mm-hmm. Can we have him? There's, But when you're going for a smaller film and the first thing they say is, is there any way we can get John Williams to score this? You realize they're completely clueless. <laughs> they don't understand film music. Budget. They just know, yeah, he's a good guy. We should get him. And I've been in that situation. You'd think that's surprising. but So well, what, what well, you hope is they kind of have a feel for the field that much. They say, I hear the guys I like, hear the movies I like that they've done that are sort of in my zone. And you pretty instantly pick up, like in any relationship... They're, as the Jamaican friend of mine would say, they're clued up as opposed to clueless. And speaking of Halloween, th- uh, horror music doesn't really, or horror movies don't get the same respect as like a drama. You're, you're not going to have an Oscar-nominated horror film. Usually, uh, Get Out was kind of a, a horror film, yeah. and maybe that changed things a little bit. But why do you suppose that... These kind of the, these films get overlooked a little bit. Is it's it just because most of them are corny? It's a funny and interesting yeah, it is arena a genre. It is a genre. And I think the the easy answer is that comedic music is hard, and certainly romantic and dramatic music has a certain flavor that you have to hit the right tone. Horror. I used to say that you can score a horror movie by hitting the lowest note on the piano as the guy starts walking up the stairs. It just works. It just sounds. He's like, oh, geez, look at that. This is going to be scary. Also, with horror movies, you can use silence in a really effective way. And so the composing is, in many ways, where to leave music out so the audience goes, uh, oh, no. Like A Quiet Place. Right. Marco Beltrami. Yeah. You leave stuff out. Of course, there are great horror scores. But it's not that you go hugely divergent musically with the ideas it's usually pretty low it's usually got some tension elements and some dissonance and people know you're just signaling to people either i'm going to fake you out and you're going to open the door and it's not the 
it's not the mad clown. It's the little girl is actually in there. <laughs> and then I'm going to make you jump. So, right. you know, you're just playing with expectations, and that's a little simpler palette. Than doing something big and, you know, with feeling. Orchestral and, yep. you know, well, with melodies. John Carpenter certainly knows his way around the Halloween That'll sound. That would be so interesting. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. That, again, comes out this fall. Uh, coming up after the break, we're here in his studio. You may hear the sounds of the city as we're in a yeah, high-rise right sirens, here in Hollywood. Trucks going up. Yeah, How many floors up do you think we are? Uh, seven. Seven floors. Based on the elevator. You can see the Capitol Records building right out the window. Oh, nice. yeah. This is, it doesn't get much more Hollywood than this. And uh, right coming up after the break, we're going to invite him in. Michael Dana, Oscar-winning, Emmy-winning, and Grammy-winning yeah. composer uh, for Life of Pi. Little Stick Miss around. Sunshine. We're going to talk all that coming up right after the break. Hey, Matt Schrader here. We're back to the show in 15 seconds, but a quick thank you to everyone who's been telling a friend about Score the Podcast. We're one of the fastest-growing entertainment podcasts out there right now, and that's thanks to you telling a friend. You're probably thinking of somebody else right now that enjoy the show. If it's safe to do so, hit pause and let them know about Score the Podcast. It helps keep this show going. Now back to the show. Hey, welcome back. We're in the fabulous, beautiful studios of Michael Dana, who many of you know, an Academy Award winning, Golden Globe winning film composer of many beautiful movies, some of which I actually had the pleasure of working with Michael on, including The Extraordinary Life of Pi. Oh, so good. We also did uh, Little Miss Sunshine, Michael. We worked on that one, and 500 Days of Summer. And The Ice Storm. That's where we first met. You know what? You actually remind me that, that when we met on Ice Storm... I remember Ang Lee, the great director. I think we have a clip from Ice Storm. Oh, good. We should play it because uh, it was my first picture with Ang Lee, who has, of course, Gamelan, which you taught me about. I learned a lot on this score. I learned. So did I, believe me. I bet. I'd love to hear about it because the first thing that happened was Ang Lee mentioned he wanted to hire Michael Dana. And I had to say, with all due respect, who <laughs> is that exactly? And I was the head of music at 20th Century Fox, supposed to know all the composers, and I had not heard your name. And then he embarrassed me further. He says he does all Adam Agoyan's films, to which I had to say, who is that? N- needless to say, in retrospect, I've now found out that you and Adam had made this incredible initial body of work in Canada. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the story? of how you and Ang met, because I remember one little bit you told me. I went to the University of Toronto, and uh, also at the same time going there was Atta McGoyan. We were both involved in theater. I had no interest or, uh, you know, any inclination or or opportunity to do film music up to that point. I was doing music for theater and having a great time. In that world, Atta McGoyan was also writing plays, and we got to know each other through those circles. And one day he said, I think I'm going to make a film. You know, do you want to do the music? And that's really how it started. And so we had no idea what film music was <laughs> supposed to be. Yeah. And so we just kind of continued the, the, you know, experimental sort of attitudes that we were doing in theater music and carried that into our film world. 
And yeah, so that's how, how I began. Um, I did a film called Exotica in right. the, uh, I think it was 94-ish. And for that score, I took a small recorder, portable recorder, a DAT recorder, digital audio recorder from back in that day and um, traveled all through South Asia and just recorded any weird stuff like snake charmers, temples, any kind <laughs> Amazing. of thing that I came across as I traveled around and then brought it home and made a score out of it. And then Mira Nair was making a film called Kama Sutra. She heard right. that score and she asked me to come and work on that film in New York. While I was in New York, I was in the venerable old Brill building. Sound One? Was that what yes, was? Yes, it was. The mixing sound, sound facilities? One. Yeah. And I was in a room. Uh, we were cutting together one of the cues, and I was sitting there with the music editor, and Alex Steiermark hmm. walked by the door, and I saw this guy kind of walk by fast and then kind of slowly come back and stick his head in and went, what is this? And... You know, I said, it's it's the score I, I, I did for Kama Sutra. And he said, I've got someone I want you to meet. Give me your number. And so <laughs> that literally was how... So Alex put Aang and I together. And Aang, you know, liked my ideas, my approach to... And he was familiar with Adam's film work as well. So, um, yeah, so we started working on this suburban uh, 1970s story such a great movie and yeah. such a great score i mean that's that score was icy i remember you used mm. it's interesting you said you recorded instruments in southeast asia because there was a gamelan orchestra mm. and these kind of very icy crystalline mm -hmm. bells yeah and a native american flute as well yeah not what you would first think of as um you know when you're thinking of 1970s suburban connecticut and <laughs> In fact, I remember um, Elmer, the venerable, great composer, who in in his day and time broke barriers and brought jazz into composition. I remember yeah. reading an interview with him where he slagged my score and said, "Lovely, I don't understand why this, why you would have, you know, this weird Asian instrument in a 1970s setting and." I thought, okay, now I've really, now I've really, <laughs> now I've really done it. Because Elmer's, Elmer's mad at me. I would think you, now you've really succeeded. In some ways, you've not only gotten Elmer Bernstein's attention, little could he know that two things happened with that score, which are you met a director who you would go on to incredible work with. Incredible. And also that, needless to say, I don't know if we can trace it all back to Ice Storm, but gamelans, strange instruments, uh, scores that aren't necessarily this kind of on-the-nose, oh, they're in Washington, D.C., we're going to use a military band, because mm. that's, I mean, people started to, and I think in all scores, look at the Jerry Goldsmith stuff for Planet of the Apes. Did they have mixing bowls on Planet of the Apes to <laughs> bang against? I'm yeah, Jerry, Jerry's a guy who had that same attitude of let's invent a whole sonic world that is right for the story. And, you know, sometimes that's not the right thing to do. Sometimes a film needs 
superficial music that just addresses the scene at hand, the setting at hand, the 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 expectations at hand. Um, but sometimes um, it. it it's better for the storytelling to dig some layers down and maybe make people have that dissonance in their head between what they're seeing and what they're hearing. The ice storm, okay, so it's this this um, time of upheaval in Connecticut. And then, you know, watching the film, I was seeing, you know, the woods and these kind of very bizarre uh, modern architecture houses that really seemed completely out of, place in the in these woods and I started thinking oh the woods where you know the native people used to live and how did Mm. they live there and how what were what was their society like how did they interact with each other what was what were their families like and and then I started thinking well that might be a good thing for the music to say to to remind people that the way these people are living is not the only way that that people live and it's not even the only way that people lived in these very woods That's but you know you go back 200 400 years there were native peoples living here and wouldn't it be nice to just think about that and have the music just nudge you in that direction and maybe it won't maybe for four to five people it won't have that effect but it you know it will I, I believe that subconsciously it does have the effect and then but by the way the music has to work on the surface first. It has to. So it has to. So those scenes of the woods, for instance, if we're talking about an ice storm, and you have the Native American flute, it on the surface it feels good. It feels right. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of got this alluring um, quality to it, but and a wistfulness and almost a sense of loss in it. But on the then on a on an intellectual level or a conceptual level, it also is about this music was written by, you know, a a people that used to live here. They used to have families. They used to have, you know, their way of interacting with nature and so on. So, yeah, I, that's a lot of research going on here. It's not just writing music, which is really cool. It's a composer finding his palette for any particular film and how do you find any artist finding the language how that language evolves and develops to be the score is so interesting and so deep I I mean there's something else that we worked on we said sometimes you know when it's not right and when it's not wrong I think you and I had an experience where you worked on something that was so right so intrinsically wedded to the picture and yet, not everyone agreed. And I, I, I've always, I don't think you and I have ever had a chance to talk about a truly remarkable moment where the studio that <laughs> Do you was know what making. This is? Michael's laughing. Yeah, the right. studio that was making Life of Pi. He's dancing. What was the movie called, Robert? The movie is called Life of Pi, <laughs> and it was a beautiful <laughs> film directed by the genius Ang Lee, who had proven himself time and time again to be a great, sensitive director. And it won four, I think, four Academy Awards, including yep. Michael's score. Also, Ang, at one point, is the author of one of my favorite comments by any director. I said to him, after we had talked about one particular cue of Michael's, the three of us were sitting in the room, Michael played something, Ang said, I like that, but I think I just this one moment, I'm wondering if you could turn it down just a bit so it doesn't 
overwhelmed this particular moment in the film. And I said to him, you are so careful and, and thoughtful about the music. I just, I'm so impressed. A lot of directors don't get that granular. And he looked at me with surprise and said, why wouldn't I be? It's like the costumes or the lighting or the dialogue or the casting. It's an equally important part of the film. And I thought, thank you so much, Ang, for showing respect for the music. Very few people, very few directors have that kind of bandwidth. So that leads us to the moment where I heard the score and I loved it. And our fearless leader came to hear it and nodded <laughs> sagely the head of the studio, a <laughs> wonderful filmmaker and someone who I and knew. And Robert, for the, our listeners, Robert worked for Fox at the time. I worked at Fox. I was president of music, and the chairman of the studio came to hear the film, and he, I know, was nervous about the film because it was a risky film for him to make, and a, the story had been very successful but not easily translated to picture. And so he came to hear the film, and he nodded sagely, and then he called me out in the hallway afterwards and said some version of that doesn't work for me. And it not was, mainstream enough? Not what what was the, he what was said, the concern? You know, he said there are too many sitars. Okay, so film takes place in India. I'm just saying that <laughs> particular cue. He said it's also all too slow. Well, there's a very dreamy sequence that starts the movie. And then he said, that guy that's composing it, not realizing that you'd already scored many films at Fox that had been successful. You sure Ang has the right guy? So these are the kind of stomach aches that you get as an executive in a movie studio, and particularly stomach achy when you know you've just heard some of the best film composing you've heard in recent memory. I remember hearing the Life of Pi score and think, this is what I came to work for. Is to, I mean, Pi's lullaby. So interesting and deep musically. Every aspect of it was art to me. Art and music combined. Not to mention the film. So, as you know, I had to come back out of that hallway <laughs> and walk back into the control room where you and Ang were waiting a little anxiously. What did he say? But I think Ang got right to the point and said, I don't think he liked it, did he? I said, well, I wouldn't go that far. Michael, you want to start packing this afternoon or you want to wait till tomorrow morning? <laughs> oh, I remember we had one conversation, and then I'd love to hear what happened in that control room afterwards. I said something silly like that first cue feels so slow what if you added a shaker mm. it may kind of do a psychoacoustic trick that makes it feel faster mm -hmm. and then i sort of said i feel that you're on the right track i don't want to get in the way of it uh let me see if i can talk to the boss and let's play it again for him in a week and see if maybe he appreciates it. And by the way, try that shaker if it works. What happened on the other side of that wall when I was... Yeah, we put the shaker in. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember he heard we that same cue in. with the shaker and said, wow, no, it, this and feels it, good. It honestly did make a difference. And look, I mean, yeah, it, by the way, world, if, if, you know, if you hadn't been there and your presence on that film was kind of this, there was... You know, there was an incredible amount of anxiety 
everywhere. I mean, we were making a film that had no model. There wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, we're just basing it on this movie that's already been made and was a success. This was a, a film that hadn't been made before, and we were yeah. figuring out how to do it. And we made a lot of mistakes. A lot of things weren't working a lot of the time. And so there was a lot of panic because, you know, a $100 million-plus movie, yeah. it was, um, you know, and so, yeah, there was a lot of panic. Um, R- Robert's presence was th- this calming kind of oil-on-water presence, which really was, uh, I mean, honestly, I would have got fired if you hadn't kind of been there to just slow things down and just say, okay, yeah, l- we can make this we can take those notes and bring them into the fold and keep, you know, keep it going, um, which is what we did. And, and it did make it better. I mean, frankly, like almost all notes make the music better. They really do. Because if one person says, you know, there's, there's this, I have this concern, it's too slow. So then, you know, you do have to look at it and think, okay, well, what could we do to, have that you know yes there's something meditative about it but we also do want the sense of youth and energy here too so have we you know do we need to nudge it over that way and you know honestly like i mean we're joking about this but the shaker actually did help a lot and and we were able to mix up some of the percussion and make it a little bit friskier and and it really helped and and you know but yes it's it's a it's a tough job but you know robert's job was to um you know make sure that no hasty decisions were made that um you know the composer is still able to do his job without you know the the mortar shells landing too (laughs) close to his to his studio and yeah i mean i have so many life of pie stories i wouldn't even know where to start but (laughs) but i'll tell you one story that you know so there was so much anxiety there was a great deal of stress and frankly the music wasn't working for a long time. And I worked on that film, you know, and Aang, like me, I mean, we're soulmates in this way. We love concept and we love really digging deep, deep to figure out how we're going to approach the storytelling. And he would literally call me from the set. And I have notes, and I still have them. Like for two years, I, he would call me just in the middle of the night and say something like, um, okay, the... It's the mother and the father, and the father is the earth, or, or the sky, and the mother is the sea, and, you know, so all these concepts, and somehow that had to all get into the music. So I had <laughs> kind of two years of these intellectual, deep, spiritual discussions with Aang, and at first I tried to, like, just write it all into the music, and it was just unlistenable. Like, huh. honestly, for months, it was just so dense, and it was like J.S. Bach and mm. too much. <laughs> So at some point, you know, Aang went, look, now you've learned all that. Like what we basically learned is, okay, you have all that knowledge inside you. Now stop thinking about it. Hmm. Just write some nice music. Right. You know, and that all that will seep into it. But, but don't, don't shove it down the viewer's throat. This is already a difficult film for someone to watch. Let's at least give them, <laughs> let's have some, some compassion, not only for Pi, but for the audience and, and, and so that was kind of that's how we ended up kind of where we ended up um but i so anyway what what i was going to tell you is that you know there there is this one you know the pink skies scene where mm-hmm. where Pi oh, yeah. has his first kind of 
evening, morning, and it's this absolutely beautiful sky. The big reflection shot, right? Yes, that's right, that's exactly. Beautiful. And and so um, the night, and then just to make matters worse, my longtime orchestra collaborator, Nicholas Dodd, who conducts and has orchestrated many of my scores. And for a film like this, he's the guy I wanted to have. He was having heart surgery and he was not available. So I had all these guys I didn't know, all these orchestrators. I went through eight of them. A conductor I didn't know. And um, I was, you know, so to add on all this anxiety, there was also that. And the next morning was the session and we had our little bungalow at Fox, me and my crew. And I stepped out the evening before and I looked up and I swear to you, it was pink skies. Oh. And I called the guys out. I went, guys, guys, come out. And we were just standing there with our jaws open <laughs> like, what? <laughs> That's the? awesome. And I knew, I knew in my gut right then, like all my fear fell away. I just thought, it's going to be fine. Like, and I, not sign. to be superstitious no, or something, beautiful. but I, I, I knew and I had no more anxiety from that moment. Of course, it was... I wish I'd had that moment like five months earlier, but, but yeah, I knew it was going to be fine. And, um, yeah, I think what I love about that, that was your Richard Parker. I think what I love about that story is that with all that went on, you wrote the music that what you didn't feel worked and was, you had to kind of reassess how to do it. And Nicholas Dodd, not being available and different orchestrators and different conductors and all that and everything anxious and it ends with this sentence and the winner I is was just gonna say that i mean was that, that like the moment isn't that a great <laughs> what was that button? like after it's all a that great button for the end of all that anxiety it it is and i think from the outside that would seem like the natural button but for for us on the inside what happened was that we honestly, we had years of struggle. Like that movie was just something we lived and we literally felt, you know, like pie, just adrift and, and be rift and, you know, um, hallucinating and not sure where we were. And, and <laughs> things, we would have these screenings for ourselves and we would, at the end, the lights would come up and we'd all be, oh my God, we're screwed. Like, this is not <laughs> working. Nothing's working. The editing's not working. The p- p- visual effects aren't working. The music's not working. And we just, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and figure this out. That went on for months. And it, it believe me, you just have no idea what a bad feeling that is of just being adrift and not being able to figure it out. And Aang is one of the smartest filmmakers who has ever lived. And he, you know, he was working his hardest. And finally, there was this sudden breakthrough where we suddenly had a screening. And it wasn't that, it was maybe a month before we recorded. It was very late in the process where the lights came up in the end. We went, oh, this this actually might work. I oh, felt I something that. that time. And then I remember when we, you know, when we finished the film and watched the final dub and that was the button for us. Like literally tears were shed. Like we, we just realized like we, we did it. Like it, it shouldn't, it didn't seem to us like it was possible. I think it's a perfect evocation of 
particularly, it's not only the artistic process, but the filmmaking process, which is that it is so hard to get a film to work. It's so hard to see the final product. You need a director like Ang. You need collaborators like you to stick through it and not give up and say, hey, that's the best I got. Um, and to think that it went through all those iterations, including those dark moments yeah. where it wasn't working. And I think I can share with you something you might not know. That was my last film at Fox. Yeah. I actually... It's a pretty I, good way to go out. It, it felt like... You wandered off into the jungle. I really did wander <laughs> off. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was time, TTG, time to go. And there was a wonderful moment because we all walked through that Life of Pi difficult moments together where I was watching the Academy Awards a few months later and thought, you know, it's like that scene in Chariots of Fire where the guy stands up and puts his hand through his boater, you know, and the guy wins the race and he hears about it on the radio and he goes, oh, yeah. I remember standing up wherever I was in Life of Pi won best score and going, right on. It was just <laughs> such a good feeling. Yeah, there's a lot of circles that closed um, like strange karma and whatever you want to call it. Uh, another interesting thing that happened that night, speaking of buttons, is that, you know, and I've worked with Ang on many films, one, the forces of darkness overwhelmed, and I did get fired off a film that Ang did. Amazing. And involved in that film was our f good friend James Seamus, hmm. who... Um, I then, after I won my Oscar and I went to the green room and came out to the bar where I had to definitely visit quickly, yeah. <laughs> and there was no, the show's still going on. There's no one at the bar except one guy, James oh, Seamus. poetry. And so just, yeah, James and I, you know, Did he look at great you soulfully and say, Forgive me. No, no. Well, <laughs> no. It was just. It was just. Uh, I mean, we it was just perfect. Yeah, ah, we just laughed, and it, it was. It was a great moment a, where we all felt like everything came around yeah. to where it was supposed to be, and everything happened the way it was supposed to. And it was just like on a film like Pie, you just can't help but think these, you know, deep thoughts. So, um, but yeah, it all anyway. worked out. Yeah. <laughs> what a block. Yeah, <laughs> that was some cool we're, stories. We're running Super a little cool. long, but um, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Michael about collaborating with his brother, Jeff. But first, the Inside Track. The Inside Track with music psychologist Dr. Sulan Tan. Imagine getting ready for the big reveal at the end of a movie. The detective spins around and announces... And the murderer is... Not being able to hear the most important line in a movie would be intensely frustrating. That's why important pieces of dialogue in film either have no underscoring, or where there is music, a space is created for the speech to shine. In this scene, for instance, John Williams' music builds and gets our attention. And then, E.T. speaks. I'll be right here. And when E.T. has finished speaking, the music comes back in like an exclamation point. <laughs> oh, 
Sometimes music plays softly behind the dialogue. In hidden figures, a complex math equation sounds lyrical as the music plays up the rhythms and melody of the voice. If the product of two terms is zero, then common sense says at least one of the two terms has to be zero to start with. So if you move all the terms over to one side, you can put the quadratics into a form that can be factored, allowing that side of the equation to equal zero. This child will grow up to be Katherine Johnson, one of the brilliant African-American women hired as mathematicians for the U.S. space program. The melody that was playing behind her voice as a child is Katherine's theme. Lastly, here's an example that illustrates an interesting psychological phenomenon. What's that? That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. That was the closing scene from It's a Wonderful Life. As soon as the dialogue begins, the singing gets softer and then louder again after the dialogue ends. But this should seem a little strange because the song is being sung by people standing a few feet away from George and his family. Yet it gets softer and then louder again, although nobody has moved. So why don't these shifts in the loudness seem odd to us. Psychologists use the phrase the cocktail party effect to refer to how we hear a cacophony of speech and other sounds when we arrive at a cocktail party until we zero in on a particular conversation. As soon as we tune in to one speaker, that voice becomes foreground in our attention and the other conversations will seem to fade down into the background. If we were standing inside the scene in It's a Wonderful Life, when we shifted our attention to George's family, it would seem to mute the singing. What's that? That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. And when we turned our focus back to the crowd, the singing would rise up again into the foreground. That's right. And a boy clan. So the audio in the scene doesn't portray an objective reality, but rather our psychological and subjective experience of sound, making the effect seem quite natural. The crowd singing is a powerful musical and emotional backdrop for this closing scene, which celebrates people uniting together. So cinema privileges the voice, and music often has to stay out of the way of the dialogue. However, when treated effectively, the interplay between voice and music can elevate dialogue, making it much more emotionally resonant and enriching the musical qualities of the voice. Dr. Sulan Tan is a leading researcher in the study of film music and the author of many books, including her latest, Psychology of Music, From Sound to Significance, available now at score-movie.com slash podcast. 
Welcome back to Score, the podcast. We're sitting here with Oscar-winning, Golden Globe-winning, Academy, or excuse me, Emmy Award-winning. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. It's <laughs> a lot of winning. <laughs> He's decorated. Winning. He's Michael Dana, and uh, what a great first block there, talking all about Life of Pi and those stories, and it full, came full circle. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, working with your brother Jeff, of course, another fantastic composer. Um, you guys worked on The Good Dinosaur together. And that score has such more of a traditional sound to it than some of your other big scores. I'm wondering, uh, here's a little clip of uh, The Good Dinosaur there. I'm wondering, um, does that come from Jeff or was that a studio thing? Uh, how, how did that evolve? Well, uh, again, I think as we were talking about in the first block, it, it's all about the story and, and um, you know, I mean, honestly, I think any composer can write any kind of music you want. And I can write, you know, brainless, superficial um, music, or I can write profound, or I can write choral or traditional with fiddles. Comedic. Comedic. Like, really, you can do, and that's what is so fantastic about what we do, is that you do get to play in all these different worlds. You're not stuck in a genre. No. And I I mean, I've been really lucky and I've worked hard on on doing that with my career is not to end up, you know, pigeonholed into one particular road of of music making. But, you know, my yeah, my brother and I have played all our lives together and we, you know, we have very similar tastes, but, you know, we're two intersecting circles that, (laughs) you know, there's some part that overlaps. But, you know, he you know, when we were young, he he was a guitar player. I was a keyboard player, so we played in bands. So he's got more that side of things, and a lot of yeah. On the Good Dinosaur, he plays a lot. Of, he's got this huge collection of of you know world strummy instruments, and hmm. and so he plays a lot of those in that. Um, but a lot of you know, if you heard some of the pieces, you might think like, oh, this one that's all plucky instruments. It must be. Jeff, but actually it was me, and then oh, this big orchestral one must be Jeff, but or me, but actually it's Jeff, and I don't know. So honestly, like sometimes we forget. I'm standing on the stage listening to the orchestra, and I'm like, "Damn, Jeff, this is a beautiful melody." He's like, "Dude, you wrote that one." (laughs) Oh, that's so nice. Um, Are you guys competitive (laughs) at all? I know, like me and my brother, if we're doing anything in the same avenue, it gets super competitive. Do you guys go at it at all? Absolutely. Like all, you know, brother um, collaborators. I'm, it's funny, by coincidence, I'm reading this bio of the Wright brothers right uh. now. And yeah, they they would scream at each other all the time. But, you know, end of the day, um, yeah, we we have so much doesn't need to be said because we just have all this common background. We just one word and we know like a whole world. So um, and you know, the bottom line is that I hugely respect what he brings to it, and he hugely respects what I bring. And like I said, they're intersecting circles. There's things that he does that I know he can do far better than me and and vice versa. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, you, you, you know, you find this great sandbox to play in. You want you want your brother to come in once he's there yeah you start fighting over toys and you know <laughs> uh, knocking down each other's castles but yeah it, it's the it's the greatest place to play like on an orchestral stage and 
who wouldn't want their brother that's there? That's so nice. It, yeah. it makes me... It's so rare, too. It, I mean, it it's is. such a small world of composers, and to have two brothers both doing big things, that, that's, that must be a proud moment for... Or was a pow- proud moment for your parents when that... Yeah, I, it is for sure. And I think, although I have to tell you, my mom yelled at me um, when I was, I guess I, I, I was just starting my film career and Jeff was still in a band and she yelled at me like, now look what you've done. Look, he's not even going to college. He's going to play in a band. <laughs> like you, you, you had to like get it's him into fault. music. <laughs> so, <laughs> look what you've done. Yeah. God. So, you know, you... You know, no no parent is uh, is ever going to like be delighted that their kid became a musician. But my parents were just mystified. <laughs> they, but I think I can't imagine young Robert. Uh, young Robert was sitting on a piano bench at five years old, so there was no surprise to them that I I never did anything else. I was the guy that climbed on, you know, at parties, at camp, whatever it was in high school. Get Robbie to play. <laughs> so I'd play Beatles songs and, you know, Stevie Wonder, and I'd entertain. Leading so, the campfire. Yeah, exactly right. There's an interesting scientific thing to you and your brother and that you, you come from essentially the same background. There's a certain kind of control element, if you think of it as a science experiment, and you both have come out of that with slightly different musical visions of the way that things sound should be put together have you have you i don't know thought about that at all have you identified yeah. this is the way jeff does something this is the way i like i to- mean i i <laughs> believe me i am very aware of of how he looks at things and he's very aware of how i look at things and i i think you know it really does help i mean i i'm i look at the scores we've done together and i'm super proud of them i feel like yeah, the the work just got elevated. He has certain things that are really important to him that I let slip through the cracks sometimes, and he'll remind me, no, mm. you, you got to, you know, and oh, yeah, okay, okay, I'll rewrite the B part, you know. But, yeah, so it really does make it better. And and there's definitely competition, and the, but, you know, look, what we do in film every day is collaborate. Like, that's... If you're not a good collaborator, then you're in the wrong business to begin with. So, you know, we we already do it all day, so we might as well keep doing it when we're when we're writing the music it, as well. It's always good to have a a sibling or somebody in your family too. That because my brother's not going to be a yes man. If something's not good, he's like, "That's terrible. You got to fix that." <laughs> so sometimes yeah. you need that. Do you do you bounce stuff off him? And he's like, "Michael, oh, yeah. come on." Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we try to be respectful, but yeah, sometimes like, man, that's just not, you know, hey, man, I I just wrote this great theme for this character. Check it out. And it's like, you know, honestly, it's just not doing it for me. Like, try again. I mean, yeah, that (laughs) that happens. It does happen. And you know what? Then the theme is better. Yeah. And, And so, I mean, bottom line, that's what we we always feel like it's going to make it better. And yeah, it's painful. It's always painful. Although, God, I'm so used to it now that, you know, I'm numb. But it's painful when people tell you your idea sucks. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, I've kind of come to terms with that so long ago that having my brother say it is is fine. Better Probably one, easier. Better one person than the masses. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'd rather go into the meeting with Jeff saying, you know what, this is, this is a really good theme. And I go, yeah, it's a really good theme. We go into that meeting, we feel... Yeah, we feel strong about it, yeah. and and 
So I look, I love writing by myself and I, I love collaborating too. I, I wouldn't want to give up either of them, but yeah, I, you know, we, if we have something coming up, I do look forward to that. That's so nice to hear. One of the things that we just wanted to know a little bit about, cause I think you may be our first Canadian that we've asked a question of is there any difference that you bring to this that you feel you can trace back to being Canadian is there an American you know approach what let's hold music? this let's do this as the, our last Got question it. after uh, after our game thank you because uh, that's a good one so I want to end, end with on. Phil full circle okay did he, did what he a have tease a nice man we'll, we'll, uh, we'll ask <laughs> did him he have a nice button through it okay <laughs> we're just we're going oh, good. Um, so we're going to take a quick break then and then when we come back we're going to play name that score and then we'll wrap with uh, that question stick around we'll be right back Hey, Matt Schrader here, director of SCORE, of film music documentary. For the latest news from the film music world, follow us on Facebook. Just search SCORE, a film music documentary. Or let us know who you want to hear next on the show on Twitter, at SCORE the Podcast. We're back here in Hollywood with Michael Dana, Oscar We're really winning. in Hollywood. Yeah. We're right near Hollywood and Vine. We literally stepped on the Walk of Fame to get into the studio so it doesn't get much more Hollywood than this I, I just don't understand why everyone isn't here when I came from Canada I assumed well Hollywood is where you're supposed to be yeah, right so I came to Hollywood and Vine and that's where we are yeah. it, it well, is kind of confusing I saw the a Spider-Man and a Wookiee down on Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> so clearly there's certain Hollywood stars here I think this must here. be the hub of all that's of right. yeah, all the entertainment yeah and there's Drunk Iron Man <laughs> Drunk Iron Man <laughs> it is a circus out the window every day it's the greatest I love Hollywood so so much it is the greatest place on earth it's, it's, it's so insane I do think you've just given the title to a great episode of a TV show which is Drunk Iron Man I think that that could be <laughs> Either <laughs> drunk history is drunk superheroes. We could do that. Yeah. So we got name that score. We ready to rock it? Uh, I think so. It's the game that is sweeping social media. Let's do it. It's heavy. Get ready to play Name That Score. The film music game where a perfect score means you, yes, you, could be a winner. Now let's play Name That Score! All right, we're all fired up. So the theme of today's game is uh, Academy Award-winning scores. Appropriate. Academy Award-winning films because, of course, Michael Dana. Our Life first Oscar-winning guest, by the way. I believe That's so. That's true. Yeah, it is. Should, should we put the award? Yeah, I will think so. Either put the award <laughs> there or... If this podcast doesn't get some more subscribers, hint, hint, it may be our last Oscar-winning oh. guest because <laughs> we're, we're going to have to, you We're going to need a sad so, score. So, Michael, please, <laughs> please share with a friend. Yes, uh, please, subscribe. Thanks for building Actually, that right Actually, you know there. what? Right now, pause, hit subscribe, <laughs> maybe rate and review, and then... Love that. Actually, All right, we, we're back. we've been thanks. so happy with the way people are finding yeah. this podcast. It's been quite remarkable yes, so thank, thank you to you. all the listeners let's um, play the game so we play five famous film scores but in reverse robert kenny and michael will all pick from three multiple choice answers the last question is worth double uh if anybody gets all five of these right is that you robert if anyone gets all of these right uh we give away a prize on our uh oh this is amazing there it is i was looking for the drop we give away a prize on our uh twitter account at score the podcast just mention hashtag name that score to enter that's all you got to do and today's theme again academy award winners for best original score wow 
Thank you. Very nice. Our audience is excited about that. So uh, we will start with question one, and I give you the options first so that we can identify these. These are the three choices. Uh, I'll give you the year and the composer as well in case that helps. Question number one. Is this from Beauty and the Beast, 1991, Alan Menken? Uh, Titanic, 1997, James Horner? Or The Grand Budapest Hotel, 2014, Alexander Desplat? Robert. <laughs> Robert's got to go first. <laughs> I'm going Beauty and the Beast because it's got a whole Beauty and the Beast vibe to it. I can't imagine it being uh, either of the other two. So, Alan Menken, B-A-T-B. Beauty and the Beast. Thank you so much. Kenny's going Beauty and the Beast? Uh, yeah, I don't think... Beauty and the Beast, I Titanic, think ultimately, Budapest, with the process of elimination, I'm going to go with Beauty and the Beast more than anything. Maestro? Hmm. Should I be spoiler here? Um, <laughs> if you need to hear it again, we could play it again. Hmm. So let me hear the options again. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, 1991. Titanic, 1997. The Grand Budapest Hotel, 2014. I mean, I, I, I'm going to join the crowd. Beauty and the Beast. All right. Oh, Everybody gets the first one. Oh, wow. Oh, much more identifiable forward. (laughs) Was that really difficult the other way around? I just... It had that Beauty and the Beast vibe to me. I think it just didn't have any of the other movies vibe. The Titanic one is so obvious. And Fantastic Mr. Fox also had a sound. True, yeah. Number two. Uh, Question two. Is this from Atonement, uh, 2007, Dario Marianelli? The Grand Budapest Hotel, again, 2014, Alexander mm. Desplat, or The Social Network, 2010, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Oh, man. Want to hear the options again? Mm, I got them. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, we got a confident craft here. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm going way out on a limb. Ready? Socializing networking Trent and Atticus that's my vote <laughs> Robert's going the social network 2010 I feel like I'm Robert crafting here but I'm gonna go with social network also Kenny's gonna follow up on that what do you think Michael I mean how can I go against these two great minds uh, <laughs> social network are you sure Michael <laughs> yes the options again wait atonement. a minute oh that's so I think, it, Budapest Hotel. I think it's atonement <laughs> Is that what you're going with? That's the only other I, possible. I one. had to guess mine because I'm not sure I'm that familiar with Dario's score for Atonement. So I thought there's a lot of piano in it, as I recall. It's like a piano mm. score. I'm guessing. I'm... Matt has done this a couple of times, and every single time he does it, it's a different answer. He, he's never uh, steered us wrong. Two, wait, wait. It is Atonement. I. I, absolutely, because I hear a typewriter. In there. I was, that's what I was yes. thinking, too. <laughs> that's what it is. It's not a synth. It's a typewriter. <laughs> what do you think, Robert? Social network. <laughs> <laughs> He's sticking with the social network. Uh, Robert, guess what you get? Oh, oh Trent. It is, it is from Buddies, where were you? There's, there's typing in social network, but yeah, it was, this is typewriter. This is good old-fashioned. This is uh, the typewriter Facebook you know movie. I gotta confess, I let you guys have that because I thought, you know, I'm just gonna. 
give you an advantage that I'm coming around from behind. That was very generous of you. Yeah. All right. Question number three. He's been winning too much lately. Winning. Yeah, he has He has had a, a little bit of a hot streak lately. Hot streak. Uh, question three. Is this music from La La Land, 2016, Justin Hurwitz, Mary Poppins, going way back, 1964, The Sherman Brothers, or Emma by Rachel Portman? Equally identifiable backwards. Equally yeah, frontwards and backwards. Yeah. That's straight up La La Land. Straight, straight up, up. Justin, three, four time. Doom, chop, chop, doom, chop, chop. Did you say Justin? Jordan Hurwitz? Not, not That's Jordan his brother. Hurwitz. <laughs> Great score. Um, Jordan Bieber. I think, uh, we got to say? see that uh, live at the Hollywood Bowl. That was a good one. I saw it too. That was lovely. Yeah. Yep. Didn't we see it together? Could have. You're right. My memory so doesn't go back so more than about a week. So. <laughs> Wasn't a memorable night, apparently. I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, question four, is this from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 2000, Tan Dunn, Slumdog Millionaire, tw- 2008, Era Ramen, or Life of Pi, 2012, Michael Dana? Okay, first of all, I'm, I'm not even Dana. touching it. I'm waiting for Michael to go. Everybody's looking at you, Michael, so you don't give it away uh, if you know. Uh, <laughs> one more time. One Can more I time, yeah. Oh, I know where it's from. Don't don't say anything yet. We've got to make uh, Kenny. Maybe Kenny go first. Since I'm going to go with Life of Pi. Kenny's going Life of Pi? Only because Robert... There was a Little Mermaid question a few weeks ago, and he got it wrong, and it's he worked on the movie. So Michael's sitting right here. I'd rather guess and get wrong than uh, <laughs> and be embarrassed that's, in front of. <laughs> I also am literally drafting off Michael, sort of going, "Oh, I know where that is." I thought oh, in I the movie. So. I'm I'm saying like gave that away. too. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I did no, give that away. You. I'm pretty sure. I... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's uh, you wrote that? Life of Pi. Yeah, but it's it's kind of amazing that I didn't know right away. It's, it's very too. interesting. So you Points don't make, everybody. you don't make a point of listening to your scores backwards. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's a little bit longer clip forwards here. Hmm. Was this the place in the movie that you thought it was? Yes. Good. Yes. Thank Took God. Take a moment. Okay. This is very important to me, question five, because it's two points and it gives me the opportunity to tie or It is. Win. So our score right now, Robert has three. Kenny and Michael both have four points. This last fifth question is worth double. So if you guys both screw it up, that means, Rob, was that you making that? Isn't that nice? Oh. We'll have to use that as a dry. All right. Don't, a br- don't break anything sound. on the yeah, microphone. Thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. So question five, uh, is this music from out of Africa? 1985, John Barry, Lawrence of Arabia, 1962, Maurice Jarre, or Star Wars, 1977, John Williams. Well, I think I know this just because uh, it's your favorite score. What's that, Kenny? Lawrence of Arabia. Oh. Or Orans, as he was called by his <laughs> Arab brothers. Hmm. David Lean directing the beautiful 
Lawrence of Arabia. You're going with that too? I am. And Michael, everybody's saying that. Yeah. All right. Good. That's a social media winner. <laughs> it nice. is. It's a social media winning answer. It's so great. Both Kenny and Michael, since they're pro- Robert got it too, but he missed one earlier, so that yeah. one doesn't count. How unfortunate. Um, I do breaker? have a tiebreaker. Uh-oh. You want to hear this? Yeah. Uh, so we can see this is Kenny Kenny against Michael, really. Oh, man. <laughs> but we already have our winners. Um, can I signal, like give him some high signs? We'll try. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't get all of them right, I so know. better just go. throw them off. Here we go. Question six. Is this from Dr. Zhivago, 1965, Maurice Jarre? The Right Stuff, 1983, oh, Bill God. Conti, or Up, 2009, Michael Giacchino. Who goes first? Oh, oh. we have the, the clock scoring that the means, drama here. That means you're right. <laughs> I'll let our Top guests go first. <laughs> I mean, I, it, I mean, I have my choice. I'm not going to pilfer. Uh-huh. You might, uh, you might be tricking us here, but I'm going to say right stuff. Oh, that's what I was going to say. 1983, Bill Conti. Okay, mm-hmm. Kenny. I, that was my choice, also. You guys don't want to make it interesting and pick something different. Up. <laughs> <laughs> Robert says up. It I'm is not, the right stuff. Was that a burp? <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool score. But I think it's forgotten sometimes, but it's a really good one. So royal. And very just American. I American. love the way he inserted that uh, police siren. In kind of too. amazing. It gives yeah. it a whole tension. Hey, these yeah. are the sounds of Hollywood. Right. <laughs> there's, the, there's the downside of being in the middle of everything is yeah. you're in the middle of everything. Uh, so our big winner, we have two of them this week. It's Kenny Holmes and our guest, Michael Dana. What happened, Robert? You know, I, I felt that it's just it's good sportsmanship to let others win sometimes. That's, that's I, thoughtful. I yeah. find it just, you know, I, I, it's called taking the dive. You know, they do it in boxing. You just take a dive, <laughs> let the other guy win. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, I wanted to ask you, um, I, I came up with this, and I think you've talked about this maybe a couple times before, but there's the idea of uh, the way that, and upbringing changes kind of a musical perspective and the way you you hear things. You've talked before about kind of the Canadian musical sentiment maybe being a little bit different from that of a lot of American composers. Can you kind of elaborate on on what you hear as the distinction there? The great thing about Americans is that they embrace... um, the disruptors, they embrace change, they embrace people that are revolutionaries. In Ca- Canada is a much more conservative country in that way, you know, and you can see from the birth of the country, it was a colony that never rebelled, basically. <laughs> like, well, okay, we'll pay those taxes, you know, we're, we're not going to pour your, put your tea in the harbor. Yeah. Uh, we'll follow the rules. And so there is that, that is a Canadian thing to kind of follow the rules and, and, also, to be a little distru- distrustful of success and a little distrustful mm. of, of, you know, people that call attention to themselves, kind of the opposite to Americans in both those ways. So I, lo- I love that here that people really are, 
you know, when I when I came here and I was starting out, people were like, "Oh yeah, you're you're a new guy. That's cool. We want to meet you. Like, what do you do? Oh, that's different. That's amazing." Whereas in Canada, there would definitely be more reticence to that. So that's the thing I love about America and why I live here now. That it's just it's a country that that really does do it better than anybody else. No one works harder. No one strives for excellence harder than Americans in in the world that I've ever seen, and I that's why I'm here because that's 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 my that's my style too. I really liked one thing, and I think it's a perfect button for the this week's episode that you you used a word that we forget about musicians and music. You said they in Canada you get a chance to play, and I, you know that's the operative verb for music. You're playing music. And there is so much pressure here to make a pop hit or make a successful movie. So the very fact that you feel that your first part of your career was really playing and you've used the Mm -hmm. word sandbox, I think that's a wonderful and overlooked aspect of growing as an artist. Michael Dana, thanks so much for being our guest on Score the Podcast. Yes, uh, we do want to remind our listeners as well as we do every week, to go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review if you like what you're hearing. And uh, be sure to tell a friend, too. We're, we're growing, and we're growing fast, and that's because you're helping us spread the word. Oh, we had a winning week because uh, <clears throat> Michael and I won the game. So make sure to go to <laughs> at score the podcast on Twitter and use the hashtag name that score. We've got some autographed Life of Pi soundtracks here. Uh, thanks to Michael Dan assigning those, so we'll be giving those away. Nice. Are there any runner-up or consolation prizes for the guy that came in second? Just curious. <laughs> we'll think about that, and maybe we'll have an answer for you next week. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>